Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. I just want to give a quick podcast recommendation before we begin today's episode, but I'll hand it over to Neil from Ancient History Hound to tell you more. Are you interested in ancient history and the occasional pun? If so, Ancient History Hound is for you. Hi, my name's Neil, and I'm the host of Ancient History Hound, a podcast which covers a range of topics across ancient Greece and Rome. Whether you're someone new to it all, or a seasoned veteran, I've got you covered. Find Ancient History Hound wherever you get your podcasts from. Alternatively, visit my website, ancientblogger.com, or find me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. I'd Say 300 is a movie that is made from the Spartan perspective. Not just from the Spartan perspective, the cameras are the Spartans, but it's the Spartan sensibility of the Battle of Thermopylae. If you had a Spartan sitting around a fire and they were telling you before anything was written down what had happened at Thermopylae, this is the way they would tell it. It's not necessarily down to the fact that they don't have any armour on. Everything about it is just to make the Spartans more overwhelming. Zack Snyder director of 300. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 21, 300 Against the Sources. In 2006, the movie 300 hit the screens of cinemas across the world, depicting a battle that took place nearly 2,500 years ago. Though, more accurately, it depicts a group of 300 warriors' involvement in that battle. For most, this would be their first and only exposure to Greek history, leaving them to either take on face value what they saw as basically fact, as it was based on actual events after all, or they would assume that this was a fictional story with a historical theme. This is Hollywood after all. For the most part, this has been my experience with people who have not encountered Greek history. Though I've also come across another group of people who have an idea of some Greek history and dismiss the entire movie as an extremely poor retelling of the battle. When pressed on why they think this is, I normally get the response that points out single elements in the movie, such as the battle rhino or some equipment that isn't historical. This somehow dismissing the rest of the story without delving any deeper into the themes and what is present. I had a conversation with another podcaster one day, Steve from the Spartan History Podcast, an excellent series on the Spartan history, so make sure to check out his show. Anyway, we were discussing the view around the movie with both of us experiencing similar views from people when it came to 300. I then started thinking that taking a look at the movie may serve as some benefit to those unaware of what is historical and what is not. So I decided to take a little break from the historical narrative we have been following, to go ahead and look at the movie 300 against the sources, since we have come to the battle itself in the series. I then turned it over to you, the listeners, in a call to arms and asked for what themes and topics people would like to see addressed. To my appreciation, the call was answered. I received an amazing response, giving us lots of areas to look into. A lot of the suggestions overlapped on certain themes, which has allowed me to look at some areas on a broader level too. So I have to say a huge thank you to those who have written in. You have helped shape this episode. Okay, so let's have a look at what we're trying to achieve for this episode. I'm not interested in looking at the individual elements in isolation, which a lot of blog posts seem to do. I'm more interested in exploring the main storyline with all of the themes present, where these smaller details can be brought up with more context behind them. 
I want to be able to show what the film manages to present fairly accurately historically, or alternatively has presented in its own interpretation with examples in the historical record that can be pointed to. I also point out some of the fanciful elements and what appears to be inserted for dramatic purposes, but not based on anything from the historical record. Ultimately, I hope after this episode, people can walk away with a better understanding of what has been presented that can be connected to the ancient sources, and therefore in line with the historical record, while also recognising what liberties have been made and perhaps why these things are presented or told the way they are. We are not looking too much at what was historical fact, but what exists in the historical record that could be drawn upon which will allow us to see how the Greeks saw their own history. Let's now turn to a brief overview of the movie 300, though I trust most of you have seen the film or have watched it in anticipation of this episode. Plus, we have just covered the battle itself in the previous episode, so most of you coming into this episode know what this movie is about. What I will do here is read what Wikipedia says about the film. Not something I rely upon for my historical narrative, but I think I can make an exception here. 300 is an American epic period action film based on the 1998 comic series of the same name by Frank Miller and Lynn Varney. Both are fictionalised retellings of the Battle of Thermopylae within the Persian Wars. The film was co-written and directed by Zack Snyder while Miller served as an executive producer and consultant. The plot revolves around King Leonidas, who leads 300 Spartans into battle against the Persian god-king Xerxes and his invading army of more than 300,000 soldiers. As the battle rages, Queen Gorgo attempts to rally support in Sparta for her husband. The story is framed by a voiceover narrative by a Spartan soldier, Dilios. Through this narrative technique, various fanciful creatures are introduced, placing 300 within the genre of historical fantasy. When watching this film, I think two elements just brought up really need to be kept in mind. The film is a story narrated by a Spartan soldier to other Spartans. The other, the film is written from Frank Miller's comics, or a graphic novel, whichever you prefer. Zack Snyder attempts to capture the themes and story from Frank Miller's work, though our focus for the episode is going to be on the film, as most of us would be more aware of the story in this format. So what are we going to be comparing the film to? Well, we'll be looking at the main ancient Greek sources that exist. The main sources that cover the early history of Sparta and their institutions which will help us explore why certain elements are presented the way they are, come from Herodotus and Plutarch. Herodotus also gives us one of the fullest accounts of the Greek and Persian wars, with Plutarch also being helpful here. These two will be our main ancient authorities, but there are a number of other ancient sources that will prove to be of some help along the way, such as Thucydides, Diodorus, and Xenophon to name a few. But enough preamble, let's get started looking at the movie itself and its relationship to history. We may as well begin with the opening of the movie, which depicts the raising of Spartan children, showing Leonidas from birth all the way through to becoming Spartan king. We covered what is known of the Spartan raising in episode 9, where we looked at the many institutions there, but let's see what the film shows us. We are first greeted with a baby being held up on a mountain, being examined for any imperfections. If the baby was found to be ill or deformed, it would be cast from the mountain, where down below lays a pile of human remains. This scene is drawing upon what Plutarch relates in his life of Lycurgus. The father of a newborn child was not entitled to take his own decision about whether to rear it, but brought it in his arms to a particular spot termed the Leche, where the eldest man of his tribe sat. If after examination the baby proved well-built and sturdy, 
they instructed the father to bring it up, and assigned it one of the 9,000 lots of land. But if it was puny and deformed, they dispatched it to what was called the Place of Rejection, a precipitous spot by Mount Degeus. As we can see, Plutarch makes no reference to tossing the baby from the cliff, but appears to be more in line with what was common practice throughout most Greek city-states. An unwanted child will be taken out of the city and left to be exposed, generally on the side of a mountain or a hill. These places were generally well known, and sometimes the children will be taken in by those unable to have their own children. Though what appears to set Sparta apart was the fact that it wasn't up to the parents, but it was up to the state to decide if the child was wounded or not. As for the pile of human bones, there has been a site located at the base of Mount Degeus, where human remains have been found, and the suggestion is that this is where the infants were cast. But all the remains that have been uncovered were that of adults, and it has been thought by archaeologists that this is where criminals were executed or their remains were taken to be disposed of. The film then moves on to describing how Spartan boys were raised, with the young Leonidas being taken away from his mother at seven years of age. Once again, this aspect is well attested to in Plutarch, with the boys having to be brought up as the state wished, and as a group where the collective would be the utmost importance. Once the education begins, we see in the film brawls and other military-style competitions taking place, also showing punishment being dealt out. Here, the movie is continuing to draw upon Plutarch's account, with The boys learned to read and write, no more than was necessary. Otherwise, their whole education was aimed at developing smart obedience, perseverance under stress, and victory in battle. So as they grew older, they intensified their physical training. We also hear the boys were provided just enough food and clothing to get by, with this helping them to withstand harsh conditions. Though they were also encouraged to scrounge and steal, with punishment being brought upon them if they were caught. Not for the act of theft, but for being discovered in their attempt. Plutarch tells us a story describing the lengths Spartan youths would go to, so as not to be discovered. One who had stolen a fox cub and had it concealed inside his cloak in order to escape detection, he was prepared to have his insides clawed out and bitten out by the animal, and even to die. As the young Leonidas grows, he is sent out into the wild and encounters an abnormally large wolf. Obviously, you can probably see this movie is going to portray things much bigger and fiercer. Also remembering, this is a Spartan recounting the deeds of his king. Though, this scene isn't brought up in any ancient accounts. Some interpretation of what was taking place during the Ogoge is probably happening here. We have a basic understanding of the Ogoge, but we don't know for certain what was actually taking place at each stage. Many cultures have sent boys crossing over into adulthood, into the wild, as initiations where they have crossed that threshold upon their return. So this could be a possibility. In the film, the killing of the wolf could be symbolising the boy returning not as an individual, but as a Spartan for Sparta, his training complete with the individual left behind. Here though, the movie says, Leonidas returns a king, with all kneeling before the young Leonidas as he returns to Sparta. So here, I want to address a couple of things. Boys who were expected to become king were not sent to take part in the Agoge due to the harshness of the program, with boys at risk of being killed during it. But maybe more likely was a fact, if a boy expected to become king failed to pass, he would bring great shame on the royal line he was from. Though having said that, Leonidas was not expected to become king when he was a child, as he had two older brothers. Events though would see him in a position where he would be in line for the kingship later in life. Leonidas being hailed as a king upon his return from the wild also flies in the face of the historical fact that boys in line for the throne did not go through the Agoge, and historically 
Leonidas wouldn't become king until he was middle-aged after the death of his half-brother, Cleomenes. The other thing we probably need to address is that Sparta had a dual kingship, but we don't see any reference to the second king, Leotychides, during the film. Granted, this is a tale about Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, though this dual kingship was at the core of Spartan society. All in all, though, remembering we are not watching a documentary, I think the film has done an okay job of taking the known Greek sources and presenting it into the framework of the story so far. The next part of the film we will look at is a Spartan's first encounter with the Persians in the story. This is through a Persian messenger arriving in Sparta to gain earth and water, representing Sparta's submission to Xerxes. There are a few things in this scene I would like to look at, such as what unfolds, some of the dialogue and themes. So let's see what takes place. The narrator leads into the scene telling his Spartan audience that Leonidas provoked the Persians. A Persian messenger then arrives at Sparta with an entourage, requesting an audience with Leonidas. During the meeting, the Persian demands that the Spartans provide earth and water to show their submission in the face of Xerxes' advance. Leonidas rejects this demand and kicks the messenger down a well, a very large one at that, with the other Persians also being tossed down. Well, believe it or not, but this scene is depicted in Herodotus' account, where the Persians had come seeking their submission, and he says that the Spartans tossed the Persian envoys down a well, while the Athenians threw them into a pit. Leonidas in the movie points to Athenian actions when he says, word has it that the Athenians already rejected their offer. One thing here, though, is the timeline of events. This action in the historical account is recorded as taking place at a time when Darius, Xerxes' father, was still king, presumably before the first Persian invasion some ten years earlier. Also, this would place the events when Cleomenes, Leonidas' half-brother, was still one of the kings of Sparta. It appears that the storyline here is trying to condense the relevant backstory for a two-hour film. Now I'll turn to some of the dialogue during this scene, as it has some connections to the historical accounts, but not in the setting displayed. No conversations between the Persian envoys and Spartans have been recorded, apart from the Persians being told to get their earth and water from the bottom of the well. The Persian envoy says to Leonidas, The Persian army is so great that it drinks rivers dry. This can be found in the histories where Herodotus is describing the sheer size of Xerxes' forces. He says, Was there a nation in Asia he did not take with him against Greece? Save for the great rivers, was there a stream his army drank from? that was not drunk dry. We've already seen Leonidas refer to the Athenians when rejecting the demands for earth and water, though Leonidas makes an ironic statement about them when he says in a dismissive tone, those philosophers and boy lovers. As we have seen in our episode on Sparta, respectable young men in Sparta often acted as inspirers or lovers to boys going through the agoge. There is also reference to the older men taking interest in the boys as they advance through the agoge, though Plutarch tells us this was not just of idle interest. Lastly, in this scene, we will look at Gorgo, the Queen of Sparta, and Leonidas's wife. She is present during the audience with the Persian messengers, and when she speaks, the Persians become indignant that she is allowed to address men. Here again, this is not recorded, but is showing how Spartan women were known to have enjoyed more rights than other women in most of the ancient world. Gorgo also quips back to the Persian envoy because only Spartan women give birth to real men. This quote of Gorgo can be found in Plutarch's work, though she is answering women from Attica on why Spartan women are the only ones who can rule men. So as we can see, the scene has been pulled from the historical account, but put into the movie to explain some backstory while also drawing on other historical elements to help flesh it out. 
Now that Leonidas has effectively cut diplomatic channels with the Persians, he now needs to gain support for the war from the ephors, the Spartan elders. In 300, Leonidas has to climb to the top of a rocky mountain where the ephors are meeting in a shrine. The elders are depicted as old, inbred and corrupt beings. Here, Leonidas seeks their approval to march to war where they consult the oracle. They fail to support Leonidas's request due to having to honour a religious festival but we are shown Persian gold was behind their decision. So let us start with the two institutions that are being depicted as one in the same. The Euphors were part of the Spartan governing apparatus, with the word meaning something like overseer. There were five Euphors who could only perform the role for one year. Any Spartan citizen, remembering this is a Spartan who had passed the Agoge, could be elected by the popular assembly. Their office seems to have provided a balance to the power of the two kings. Their depiction in the movie seems to be drawing on points in Sparta's history where corruption in the ranks had taken place, such as Cleomenes' bribes at Delphi. Though, there is no account of corruption being present in Sparta during the lead-up to the Battle of Thermopylae. The other element here, involving the Pythia, is taken from the Oracle of Delphi, a site completely separate from Sparta. Though, Spartans would travel to Delphi to consult the Oracle there, like many other city-states. At Delphi, the Pythia would be overseen by the priests at the site, who would interpret her ramblings when in a trance state. Again, there are examples in the ancient accounts that points to possible corruption taking place at points in the oracle's history, with the Athenian Alcumenidae family being one. So it would seem that this has also added to the depiction in 300. Something else to keep in mind is that it was customary to bring a gift to Delphi in proportion to one's wealth. So where a gift ends and a bribe begins, could come down to one's interpretation. Something else that is shown is that the ephors were in the Persian pocket, so therefore putting up resistance for Spartan action against the invasion. There is no account of this in the histories we have today. What can be deduced from the ancient accounts is that the Spartans were in favour of a defensive line at the Isthmus of Corinth, which would see the reluctance to deploy further north into Attica and beyond for most of the period of the second Persian invasion. It is interesting though that some 80 years later during the Peloponnesian War, Persia would help bankroll Sparta's victory over Athens. So maybe some inspiration has been taken from this episode. Okay, so let's finish up this scene with something found in the sources. The ephors make reference to the Carnea, and it being blasphemous to go to war during it, which we have covered in our past episodes. The festival does in fact influence the Spartans' willingness to deploy an army in the field. Ten years earlier, before Marathon, the Spartans would arrive too late to the battlefield, due to the festival. While before Thermopylae, it as well as the Olympic festival saw the reluctance of the Spartans to go to war while taking part in their religious obligations. The oracle supposedly reveals, honour the gods and honour the Canaia. Sparta would receive a prophecy from Delphi, though it was a little different to what is revealed in the film. According to Herodotus, the prophecy ran like this. Hear your fate, O dwellers in Sparta of the wide spaces. Either your famed Great town must be sacked by Perseus' sons, or, if that be not, the whole land of Lacedaemon shall mourn the death of a king of the house of Heracles. For not the strength of lions or bulls should hold him, strength against strength, for he has the power of Zeus, and will not be checked till one of these two he has consumed. Okay, so we have skipped over some bits and pieces, but effectively the story is now set up where Leonidas wants to march against the Persians, but due to the corruption within the ephors and the character Councilman Theron, the Spartan army will not be released to march. 
but Leonidas seeks to find a way around the ruling. We are now greeted with Leonidas and some Spartans assembled on the outskirts of Sparta. It's obvious that Leonidas has the intention of meeting the Persians at Thermopylae, and has requested that the 300 Spartans assembled all have living sons to carry on their name. When the council members approach to remind Leonidas that the oracle has spoken, he says he only has the intention of taking a stroll with his personal bodyguard, though no one is fooled. Firstly, the reference to the 300s being chosen due to their having living sons is found in Herodotus's account. It's also interesting that Leonidas says that the Spartans there with him are just his bodyguard while he takes a stroll. This is referring to the fact that when a Spartan king travelled, he was always accompanied by a personal bodyguard. Exactly how many this was is a little unclear, as we have accounts from Plutarch and Xenophon, which refer to the crack Spartan unit known as the Hippias. To be chosen to serve in this unit was one of the greatest honours. They were 300 strong, though with three separate commands of 100. No reference is made to them acting as royal bodyguards, but it would make sense that they would act as the protectors of the king. Herodotus then tells us that Spartan kings would have a bodyguard of 100 accompanying them on campaigns. Now I want to address the notion that Leonidas was at odds with the rest of the Spartan governing body over their response. Firstly, as we have discussed in our previous episodes, a coalition was created that is now known as the Hellenic League, with Sparta pretty much at its head. This is where the strategy to defend Greece was created, with Spartan home policy having a great influence within the League. Ultimately, Sparta, as a polis, would have agreed on a general course of action, and sitting by idle was not their course. As well as the 300 marching to Thermopylae, another Spartan would be sent to command the combined Hellenic fleet, which also included a small Spartan contingent of ships. Also, in Diodorus's historical library, the E4s are presented as wanting to send more troops to the pass than what Leonidas wanted to take. This is supposed to imply that the king was marching to certain death and didn't want to send any more Spartans to their deaths that could be helped. We then see at the end of the scene another Spartan phrase that has come down through the ages, as Gorgo says farewell to Leonidas. She says, Spartan, come back with your shield, or on it. This line comes from Plutarch's work, who he attributes to an unnamed Spartan woman. Leonidas and his Spartans now marched north, and along their way they met another contingent of Greeks who wanted to join them to fight the Persians. Here we now encounter one of the biggest issues with the movie that I have heard the most. There were more than just 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. I'm going to repeat something that I have said at the beginning of the episode. We need to keep fresh in our minds when watching the film, the story is being told by a Spartan to other Spartans. With this, we should expect that other Greeks involved would be taking a back seat in the narrative. But with the introduction of the Arcadians into the story, we are seeing the representation of all of the Greek allies with their role in the film. Arcadia was a region that bordered Laconia, the region that Sparta was in, and at Thermopylae, the Arcadians would provide one of the largest contingents there, according to Herodotus. Throughout the movie, Leonidas also makes reference to the Thespians and Phacaeans, who were also present historically at Thermopylae, and the Thespians would also be there for the final stand. A conversation between Leonidas and the Arcadian leader, Daxos, ensures, with Daxos wondering why Sparta's commitment doesn't match his own. Leonidas then proceeds to ask individual Arcadians their professions, with all giving various trades. He then asks the Spartans what their profession is, where they all chant as one, implying they are soldiers by trade. This exchange takes its inspiration from a similar event in Plutarch's work, but from the Spartan king, Agesilaus, nearly a century later, when he was proving he had brought more soldiers than his allies. 
The Spartans and Arcadians, now joined, continued to march north. Along the way they came across a city that had been destroyed, with unthinkable acts committed against its inhabitants. In the accounts that survive, there is no mention of any wasted lands between the Spartans setting out to march in their arrival at Thermopylae. This appears to be showing us what the Spartans and other Greeks were setting out to fight against. Also, it would have been very unlikely that they would have encountered any ravaged lands before arriving at Thermopylae, as this was the choke point for setting a front line against the Persian advance. Though, in the movie it is said that the devastation was caused by a scouting party, who could have gone ahead of the main army, so it could be plausible, but we have no historical account showing the Persians to have moved south of Thermopylae before the battle. The scene could also be taking inspiration from what Herodotus' account tells us of the Persian advance after the Battle of Thermopylae, where the city-states unwilling to side with the Persians suffered fate similar to what is depicted. Marching through the mountains, the Spartans then arrived out onto the open cliffs, looking out on the sea near Thermopylae. Here they could see the Persian fleet and sense a storm is coming. During the night, a massive storm batters the Persians out at sea, wrecking many of their ships. So, first things first. The Persians did have a large fleet that sailed on the campaign, but there is no way that the Spartans would have seen it. If they had, the position at Thermopylae would already be lost. A Greek fleet had taken up position some 40 kilometres north of Thermopylae at Artemisium to prevent the Persian navy getting to the coast near Thermopylae, where they would be able to outflank the position with an amphibious landing. The Persian fleet would be engaged with the Greek navy at Artemisium during the same days as the Battle of Thermopylae would take place. Having said that though, a storm that wrecked many Persian ships did take place. This was further north of Artemisium, as the Persians began advancing towards the Greek naval position. But once again, we are seeing the story include elements of the campaign, without taking the focus off the Spartans. This is their story, and the film does not try to hide that fact. It is likely that the Spartans would have learned of the Persian disaster through lines of communication that would have been set up between the army and navy, which Herodotus does tell us about. Okay, so now I want to deal with the scenes that take us back to Sparta with Gorgo and the political intrigue taking place. First up, these scenes are in the film purely for the storytelling purposes, relating to the reluctance of the Spartan council sending the army to war. These aspects do not exist in any historical account that has survived today, or anything that can be alluded to, though we still find elements in these scenes that have historical context. The scenes back in Sparta are spread throughout the film, but we'll deal with them as a whole. Firstly, let's start with Gorgo herself who is an actual historical figure. We are first introduced to her as a young girl in Herodotus' histories, when her father Cleomenes was one of the Spartan kings, and the Ionians came seeking aid from the Spartans some 20 years earlier. Gorgo would grow up and end up marrying Leonidas, who happened to also be her uncle, since Cleomenes was Leonidas's half-brother. In Gorgo, we find the role of women in Sparta represented as strong and independent. Opposed to women in other Greek city-states, they had much more freedom within society, including being able to own property. We also see that the Spartan notion of the state being supreme over the individual, where she sacrifices her own body when giving herself to Theron to gain support in getting full Spartan army to march to war. In another scene, we see Theron referring to Plisarchus, Gorgo's son, beginning the Agoge the next year. This would assume that he was six years of age. If this was correct, since Leonidas was king and Plistarchus would be the next in line, he would be exempt from having to take part in the Agoge. Though it isn't entirely known when Plistarchus was born, but it seems likely he would have been older than what is represented in the film. Leonidas and Gorgo were married before Leonidas became king, around 490 BC, 
so it is likely that Plistarchus would have been born before 490. As it is thought, he was the only child of the pair. But ultimately, it would seem he would have been exempt from the Agoge since his father was king by 490 BC anyway, although they could opt for him to take part. Throughout these scenes, we see Gorgo involved in the politics of Sparta. Although there are no accounts of this, it seems to be drawing from how the ancient accounts present Spartan women. They weren't able to take part in typical Spartan citizen activities, but had far more freedom than their sisters in other Greek city-states. Plus, the film appears to be highlighting how Gorgo was presented in the ancient accounts, as independent, intelligent and witty. But, as I have said, the events shown in the film with Gorgo back in Sparta are not presented in the historical narratives. Okay, so now we're at the Pass of Thermopylae, and drawing closer to the battle, so let's look at the events leading up to, and the battle itself. The day after the storm where the Persian ships were destroyed, a small group of Greeks looked down from the mountains onto the Persian camp. Before them is a vast camp laid out with many ships in the gulf. Daxos then makes the comment, I saw those ships dashed against the rocks, how can that be? Again, for the ships to be in the gulf, the Thermopylae position would be easily outflanked. Also, this would mean that the Persian ships would be behind the Greek position at Artemisium. Though, the sources do tell us of a huge camp made in the plains outside of the mountains leading to the Thermopylae. It's just that the Persian navy was some 40 kilometres away, having to contend with the Greek fleet. The line Daxos utters is drawing from the Greek sentiment at the Artemisian position, as they were the ones who learned of the Persian navy even after they had suffered in the storm. Herodotus says after the storm had passed, when the Greeks on the arrival at Artemisium found a large Persian fleet laying at Aphite and all the neighbourhood full of troops, it was evident to them that things had gone very differently than expected. We then met with a Persian emissary approaching the defensive line at the pass, with the sound of his whip cracking as he urges on the slaves carrying his pedestal. The Greeks are building a wall on the pass that Persian bodies can be seen as being included in the building material. After some exchanges with the Spartans, the emissary attempts to whip them, though one of the Spartans flies through the air and cuts off his arm holding the whip. We then have a few more lines of exchanges that we'll have a look at, where the Spartans say, Tell Xerxes he faces free men, not slaves. And we also get the famous line, Our arrows will blot out the sun, with the reply, Then we will fight in the shade. We have accounts in most of the sources that tell us the Persian scouts operating around the area, and some coming up to the pass, but nothing suggesting that they were slaughtered by the Greeks let alone used for mortar in their wall. Speaking of the wall, this is attested to in the histories as being a remnant from an older war between Phocus and Thessaly. Upon the Spartans' arrival, Leonidas had ordered that it be rebuilt for the upcoming struggle. The emissary being sent forward is the movie's interpretation of the various sources' accounts of messages being sent up to the Spartan line. Basically, Herodotus tells us of scouts being sent to observe the Spartans at the pass and report back. Plutarch has written messages being sent back and forth between Xerxes and Leonidas, while Diodorus, probably a little closer to the scene, has envoys sent forward to gain the Greeks' attitudes towards war. No one, though, has a messenger's arm being cut off as he tried to whip them. I think here we are seeing a metaphor in play that ties in with the line, Tell Xerxes he faces free men, not slaves. A number of Greek sources present the Persians as having to be driven on by the whip. In contrast to this, the Greek sources are proud of the fact that they are free. At Thermopylae, we see this dichotomy encapsulated in Demaratus' answer to Xerxes in Herodotus' account, which we covered last episode, but here it is again. They are free, yes, but not entirely free, for they have a master, and that master is law, 
which they fear much more than your subjects fear you. The cutting off of the emissary's arm holding the whip by a Spartan soldier is symbolising this whole notion. And finally, the line about the arrows blotting out the sun can be attested to in Herodotus' account, who he attributes to Dianikes, though he is supposed to have heard from other Greeks in the region about how numerous the archers were. Some 600 years later, Plutarch would also refer to this line, though he would put it into the mouth of Leonidas. When someone was saying, it isn't even possible to see the sun because of the Persian arrows, Leonidas then said, how pleasant then, if we are going to fight in the shade. We then move to another fictitious scene, but not without historical reference. The character Ephialtes meets with Leonidas. We will see Ephialtes again in his more well-known role as traitor to the Greeks, but let's just deal with what this scene is portraying. First up, we have no account anywhere that Leonidas and Ephialtes met. Though Leonidas does learn from the locals in the area about the path and the mountains, the film presents Ephialtes as of Sparta, but his family going into exile after he was born so he would not be killed. But in the historical accounts, he is said to be from the region around Thermopylae. Here we are also seeing echoes of how the movie began and Sparta's focus on fit, healthy and undeformed babies. Leonidas proves to Ephialtes that he cannot fight as a Spartan as he is not strong enough to lift his shield, therefore he is unable to contribute to the protecting of the group. Here Leonidas is explaining how a phalanx works by fighting as one and each man's shield protecting his comrade to the left, which is generally how a phalanx is understood to operate. He is also referring to the true strength of Sparta. The individual is not the focus, but how they contribute to the group is where the real strength lies. Again, this is echoed in Demaratus's words to Xerxes when Herodotus has him saying, So it is with the Spartans, fighting singly, they are as good as any, but fighting together, they are the best soldiers in the world. So we see Leonidas reject Ephialdi's bid to fight as a Spartan, once again representing only the fit and healthy have a place in Spartan society. The first day of battle now commences, with the Persians approaching the pass. This then sees the first contact of the battle, with the Persians crashing against the shield wall. The Spartans then eventually advance out from their phalanx cutting down the Persians. They then reform and push a group of Persians from the cliffs into the sea. Though before the fight begins, a Persian messenger rides out on horseback and another famous exchange takes place. Spartans, lay down your weapons. A spear is then thrown and kills the messenger with the response. Persians, come and take them. This ties in with our previous look at the scouts and messengers. This example is not attested to, but the exchange of these lines are reported by Plutarch, though them having been part of written messages that were delivered between Leonidas and Xerxes. The initial battle scene seems to do a good job of depicting the phalanx shield wall, though how a phalanx fought has been debated by historians for as long as books have been written. I'm no expert on hoplite warfare, but I plan to devote an entire episode to the topic in the future sometime. The more solid accounts of hoplite warfare don't exist until around the Peloponnesian War some 50 years later, and which can be found in Thucydides' work. This phalanx formation only blasts briefly before the Spartans break ranks and start fighting individually, like scenes from the Iliad. Breaking from the notion that the Spartans fighting as one unit, and where they get their strength from. As for the Persians being pushed from the cliffs, this appears in Herodotus' account, though during the third day of battle. The Persians are said to have been driven forward by their commanders with whips. Many fell and drowned in the sea, while many more were trampled to death by their comrades. 
Once the Spartans had dealt with the opening waves of the battle, the Persian cavalry were sent in. The accounts we have do not mention any cavalry attacking the Greek lines, plus Xerxes would have known that it made no sense to waste his best arm against a shield wall and a narrow pass with no room for manoeuvre. So with these waves defeated, we are next met with Xerxes being carried on his extravagant throne up to Leonidas's position. We have nothing in the sources that suggests that Leonidas and Xerxes ever met, but there are historical connections within. Xerxes basically attempts to convince Leonidas to join his side in the war during this scene. What is put forward is similar to what Diodorus has the envoys saying that was sent by Xerxes before the battle started. Also something else interesting, what is offered to Leonidas is very similar to what the Persians offered Athens a year later, before the Battle of Plataea. Once again, we also see the slave versus the free represented again with Xerxes saying that he would gladly kill any of his men, with Leonidas then responding that he would gladly die for any of his. With Leonidas's refusal of Xerxes' offer, he sends in his best forces, the so-called immortals. In the film, they are sent in as night falls, though it is very rare for ancient battles to take place at night. But it is hard to tell from the sources whether they did attack during the night or day. The film represents them as anonymous, soulless and faceless beings who seem to resemble ninja-like characters. These immortals also have within their ranks a chained ogre to be set free against the Spartan line. I think we can just address the ogre as being a fanciful element representing the dark and monstrous nature the immortals portray in the story. The fight that ensures is shown to be much tougher than what they faced earlier, with some of the Spartans falling and Leonidas almost being killed. Eventually the Spartans get the upper hand and Daxos and his Akkadians are called upon to join the fight. We will look at how the Persians are represented in the film more generally later on, but for now we will just stick with the immortals. It seems that the film has taken what can be found in the Greek sources and exaggerated it. The name Immortals comes from the Greeks themselves, mainly from Herodotus, but Xenophon also refers to them later on. It was believed that their ranks would always remain at 10,000, with the fallen always replaced from a source of reserves, helping generate the sense of an anonymous force. These would be the tales that the Greeks told themselves about the elite Persian force they would encounter. Like many special units in history, Legends would emerge surrounding their exploits and reputation. We don't get a full picture of the immortals from the Persian point of view, but it's best to probably think of them as an elite force within the Persian Empire, made up of the best troops and noble families, and will be seen as one of the most reliable forces that the king could call upon. We can perhaps get a close depiction of what they look like from the reliefs at Persepolis and Susa, which I'll put up on the episode's page. These seem to match up to how Herodotus describes them. The dress of these troops consisted of a tiara or a soft felt cap, embroidered tunic with sleeves, a coat of mail looking like the scales of a fish, and trousers. For arms they carried large wicker shields, quivers strung below them, short spears, powerful bows with cane arrows, and daggers swinging from belts beside their right thigh. Although this description relates to the ethnic Persians, he later says that the immortals were made up of picked Persian troops and implies they were dressed and equipped much the same. As we can see, quite a bit different to the masked ninjas of the film. We are presented on screen of a much tougher fight occurring for the Spartans against the immortals, where we start to see some of the Spartans falling in battle. But in Herodotus' account, the fight is presented as much the same manner as the ways that had come before. While Diodorus says the immortals fled after a brief resistance. 
The Arcadians now also entering into the fray show how the other Greeks were also present, but not to the quality of the Spartans, of course. Herodotus in the first day implies that the Spartans held the pass, and it wasn't until the second day where the other Greek contingents became involved in the fighting, where we then hear of a system of rotation coming into effect, so that all the contingents would receive a chance to be at the front line. I feel there was a missed opportunity in the film here on the first day of fighting. Herodotus gives us an account of some of the tactics used. Amongst the feints they employed was to turn their backs in a body and pretend to be retreating in confusion, whereupon the enemy would pursue them with a great clatter and roar. But the Spartans, just as the Persians were on them, would wheel and face them and inflict in the new struggle innumerable casualties. To have based some of the fight scenes off actual reported tactics would have been a great move. Not to mention this would have been an impressive display of discipline in combat and have broken up the scenes of the Spartans continually breaking ranks. When it comes to the second day of battle, the historical accounts from Herodotus and Diodorus report the Persians continued the attack, with the results being much the same as the first day. The film here takes the opportunity to showcase all of the peoples and resources that Xerxes had to call upon, and that made up the Persian Empire. We see the battle rhino, war elephants, and other exotic troops sent against the Spartans. No historical account has rhinos or elephants been deployed against the Greeks during Xerxes' invasion though these seem to be more representative of the nations that made up the Persian army. The rhino showing he drew forces stretching from Africa and all the way through to the east, with the elephants representing the Indus Valley. As the scene began, we heard the narrator, the Spartan Delios, introduce the second day's fighting with the words, whips crack, barbarians forward. We have covered the theme in the historical accounts where the Persians have been urged on by whips. The term barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarois developed from the Greek sense that other nations spoke gibberish and just sounded like bar bar. Therefore, all those who were not Greek speakers were barbarians. As the Spartans defeat the various forces sent in on the second day, we see Xerxes' anger and frustration boil over, with the commanders of the failed attacks sent off to be executed. We get a hint of emotion overcoming Xerxes in the histories when Herodotus on the first day of fighting says, In the course of the attacks, three times, in terror for his army, he leapt to his feet. We don't hear of any executions taking place at Thermopylae, though Diodorus, when speaking of the second day, says, If they, the Persians, should storm the approaches, he, Xerxes, would give them notable gifts, but if they fled, the punishment would be death. We also get an example in Herodotus' account, when the Battle of Salamis was taking place a couple of weeks later, where contingent commanders of the Phoenicians performed badly and were beheaded. So the scene is not out of the realm of possibility, we just don't have an account of it happening at Thermopylae. And also, the executioner probably did not have blades as arms. We then move on to Elphiodes in the Persian camp, and the main premise of this scene can be found in the ancient sources. Herodotus is aware of a couple of accounts that would see the Greeks' position portrayed, but thinks the one involving Elphiodes to be the most likely. Though, as we have pointed out already, Ephiotes was a local of the region, not a Spartan. He revealed his information in return for riches, which we can see represented in his presence in the harem at the Persian camp, where Xerxes offers him pleasures and riches if he would lead his men into the mountain trail. Here again the historical accounts talk of Ephiotes acting as a guide for the immortals in the mountains. The historical figure of Ephiotes seems to be much more benign and opportunistic than the deformed Ephiotes of 300. 
After the Greek and Persian Wars, Ephialdes would have a bounty placed on his head for the crimes against the Greeks. Back in the past with the Spartans, a distressed Daxos confronts Leonidas, with news that the Persians are making their way through the mountains to outflank their position. He also makes reference to the Phacaeans being bypassed in the mountains. We have in Herodotus' account news of the Persians in the mountains being delivered to Leonidas. A sense of panic was in the air and a number of contingents decided to leave the pass, while some wanted to stay. Leonidas would end up dismissing all of the Greeks but would remain behind with his Spartans though the Thespians would refuse to leave and would remain in the final day, as well as the Thebans. Now I think it's time to deal with our storyteller of the film, Dilios. As I've been pointing out, he is recounting the story of the Spartans at the past to his fellow Spartans who were not there. This is why we are seeing the Spartans take centre stage of the story with the other Greeks in the background, though the historical accounts seem to present Thermopylae this way, but they do highlight the other Greeks a bit more. Also, Dilios is recounting the feats of his comrades, so some exaggeration and embellishment is expected. Leonidas now pulls Dilios aside, who has suffered an eye injury in the previous day's fighting, and gives him the mission of taking a message back to Sparta, and to tell their story. The character of Dilios is based off a historical figure that was at Thermopylae, that of Aristodemus. Herodotus gives us two stories of Aristodemus, along with another Spartan that had been sent to the rear to recover from an eye disease. Aristodemus used the excuse to not return to the pass while his companion managed to join the battle there after hearing the Persians move on the Greeks. The other story has Aristodemus being sent back to Sparta with a message, but then making his way back to the pass again with the companion. Aristodemus is supposed to have loitered along the way, but his companion was able to arrive in time for the final day of battle. This would ultimately see him being the only survivor of the 300 and socially shunned in Sparta, as he had acted in a manner unbefitting a Spartan. Dilios in the film is represented far differently to the historical figure of Aristodemus, but we shall see him again at the end of the movie, and we'll tie up our look of him there. With dawn on the third day, Daxos and his Arcadians leave the pass. Dilios narrates, Other Greeks leave, Spartans stay. We already covered the contingents leaving and staying, but we also get hints in the historical accounts that the helots that accompanied the Spartans also remained. Leonidas now addresses his Spartans in preparation for the final day. Spartans, ready your breakfast and eat hearty, for tonight we dine in hell. This phrase is recorded by Diodorus and by Plutarch, though they record this phrase with one notable exception. The word hell was Hades. The notion of hell didn't exist in the time of Thermopylae. Hades was where all the dead went, and there is a suggestion in Homer's works that the dead could not eat or drink in Hades. So in a sense, they would be taking their last supper. We now enter the final day of battle, seeing all of the immortals getting into position, as well as the archers of the mountains. For this final day, Xerxes has come forward to watch the battle, and hopefully gain the Spartan submission. Ephiotes is also present and begs for Leonidas to surrender. A Persian messenger now steps forward and offers Leonidas terms if he will submit to Xerxes. The scene gives the impression that the Spartans prepared for the final stand as the day broke, and then becoming surrounded. Though Herodotus says that they came out from the narrow part of the pass and engaged the Persians. Perhaps now in more of a manner that was depicted in the film's first two days of fighting, and how the combat is described in Homer's Iliad of the Trojan War. The historical account gives the impression that a final last desperate attack was unleashed. 
Diodorus, in his work, even has the Spartans launching a final attack on the camp of the Persians, seeking out Xerxes before the sun had risen. A climax in the fighting is what we are left with historically before the Spartans withdrew for a defensive last stand. Ephialtes pleading with Leonidas is another liberty taken from a creative perspective, as it gives a chance for Leonidas to point out the curse of Ephialtes' name. His last words to him were, Ephialtes, may you live forever. Later in history, he would live forever, as his name would come to mean nightmare. The terms offered to Leonidas are once again an echo of what we have already covered as being found in Diodorus' account, but it also follows very closely to the terms offered to the Athenians before the Battle of Plataea, which we will see once we get to those episodes. Before Plataea, the Athenians would be offered similar terms on two occasions, if they would submit, very similar to what is offered in the film. The final act of the battle is now triggered, with Xerxes' messenger being killed by Leonidas, throwing his spear, injuring Xerxes, fulfilling his promise that he would make him bleed before the battle was over, revealing to his men he was not a god. This then sees the Spartans come out of their turtle shell formation to engage the Persians. The Persians now also begin to strike the Spartans down with their archers, until Leonidas is the last one standing. The final act of the battle is for a barrage of arrows to rain down on Leonidas, blotting out the sun. As we have just covered, the third day does not unfold in the sources as seen in the film. In our last episode, we covered the main events given by Herodotus in each day of battle. We have no indication that Xerxes was ever present at the front lines, but observed from afar. Probably one of the biggest misrepresentations in the film, from the historical record according to our earliest source, Herodotus, is that Leonidas was killed in the fighting outside the pass before the Spartans withdrew for their last stand. We hear how the Spartans rallied around his body and fought off four separate attacks before being able to retrieve the body of the king. Though we do hear of the Spartan force being wiped out by archers in the accounts given. Also, once again, the other Greeks that were present at the last stand are completely absent from the story. There were also the Thespians, who formed up in the past for the last stand. It is unclear if the other Lacedaemonians and Helots were also present, with the sources hinting that they well could have been. With the battle over and the Spartans wiped out in the pass, we now head to the last scenes of the movie. This has Delios back in Sparta, where he first passes on a pendant to Gorgo she had given to Leonidas to wear. Gorgo then places the pendant around his son's neck. This seems to be representing the passing of the kingship from Leonidas to his son. Historically, his son Plastarchus was too young to take the throne in his own right, and his uncle Cleombrotus would act as his regent until his death a year later. After this, Plastarchus's cousin, Pausanias, would take the role of regent until he came of age. Delios then moves into addressing the Spartan council, where he gives a tale of Leonidas and the 300 Spartans, in an attempt to convince the council to allow the Spartan army to march. We have already covered over this notion that the council was blocking the march of the army earlier. We have no account of Aristodemus, who Delios seems to be based off of, addressing the council. Aristodemus would have been shunned in Spartan society for returning home while the rest of his comrades had fallen in the pass, especially when it was thought he purposely delayed returning to the pass. Though it probably seems likely that the Spartans would want to learn what they could from him, since he was the only survivor. But this probably would have been done in a lower key manner. Dilios, though, quotes a line in the film that is still found at the site of Thermopylae. After the battle, the lyric poet Simonides was supposed to have been commissioned to provide the epitaph dedicated to the fallen Spartans. Go tell the Spartans, passer by, that by Spartan law, 
we lie. The scene then transitions, with Dilios continuing his speech, but in front of the Spartan army, arrayed for battle. He talks of them being at Plataea, with 10,000 Spartans and commanding 30,000 free Greeks. He then finishes his speech, invoking Leonidas and the 300, before they then charge into battle, bringing the film to an end. The transition to this scene takes us to the historical Battle of Plataea, which would be fought nearly a year after the Battle of Thermopylae. With a defeat at Thermopylae, the Persians marched deeper into Greece, and where the naval battle of Salamis would take place. This would be a Persian defeat, but the Persian army would remain, and eventually the Greeks would unite for a final battle on the Greek mainland of the second Persian invasion. The film being focused on the Spartan story only shows the Spartans at Plataea, but a number of other Greek city-states would also take part in the battle. Herodotus tells us that there were 5,000 actual Spartans at Plataea, with another 5,000 Lacedaemonians, probably from the Perioiki class. In addition, it's thought that there were some 35,000 to 40,000 helots that accompanied the Spartans at Plataea. Although the Greek force would number somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000, the figure given by Dilios of 30,000 free Greeks is pretty close to the numbers reported by Herodotus, when looking at the hoplites that were at the battle. At this stage in Greek history, the citizens of various city-states would have fought as hoplites, while the lighter troops that would have made up the remainder of the numbers would have for the most part not been considered full citizens of the polis they came from. The boast that the Spartans commanded the Greeks at Plataea is also historical, as it had been decided that the commanders of the united Greek forces at sea and land would be led by Spartan commanders. The army at this stage was commanded by Pausanias, Leonidas's son's regent. Finally, let's look at Delios and his role in motivating the Spartans before the battle. Obviously, Delios is used as the narrator for the story, so he's put in front of the Spartans before Plataea to finish off the tale. Though with this character being inspired by Aristodemus, it would be almost certain that his fellow Spartans would not have given him the time of day, let alone listen to him giving an inspiring speech at the head of a Spartan line. As far as they were concerned, Aristodemus was a trembler, and had dishonoured himself by returning to Sparta, while the rest of the force had sacrificed themselves at Thermopylae. At Plataea, though, he would rush out of the Spartan ranks seeking death amongst the Persians, and before being cut down, he took a great many Persians with him. This act would help return honour to his name after the battle. This now brings us to the end of the film, though I still want to address the themes of how both the Persians and the Spartans are presented. The entire story of this film is told from the point of view of a Spartan, retelling the sacrifice of his comrades and king. Just from this, we can expect to see the Spartans shown in a heroic light, while the enemies are vilified. This is a constant throughout history, when nations are recounting their great deeds. We also find this sentiment in historical sources, but here, there are no Spartan sources, with most coming from Athens. Though, they were Greek too, and fought against the Persians in the same war, so a superior view is still going to exist over a foreign power. When it comes to the sentiment of the Greeks from a historical point of view, things are represented fairly accurately. This doesn't mean what was represented is actually historically accurate. We see the Persians painted as massed, monstrous hordes, while also being painted as a picture of excess. We see this in the vast size of the army in some of the scenes, also with Dilios's narration backing up this representation. The depiction of the immortals, ogre, executioner, and other various monstrous beings add to the scene of an evil, unhuman force attacking their homeland. Again, this is common practice to dehumanise one's enemy. In reality, the Persian force was like any army that had various nationalities that made it up, 
there would have been all sorts of different dress, armour and weapons, as pointed out when Herodotus gives his account of all the nations in the Persian army. This probably being the first time that the Greeks would have come across many of these troops. Being presented as an endless horde of troops also has some grounding in the Greek sources, with Herodotus putting the fighting strength of the Persian army at over 2 million. Though this figure is probably an error from mixing up the command titles of the commanders who commanded the units of 1,000 and 10,000. In reality, most historians place the numbers somewhere around 200,000. The theme of excess around the Persians is at its strongest with the representation of Xerxes, who was presented as a god-king. The Greeks historically had this impression of him due to the stories of him defying the natural world, and therefore the gods that inhabited it. Two of the greatest examples are found when Herodotus describes Xerxes' bridging of the Hellespont and the cutting of the canal through the peninsula of Mount Athos. Herodotus uses Xerxes' actions and his forces' ultimate defeat during the Persian Wars as a cautionary tale and hubris, that notion found all throughout Greek culture of excessive pride and defiance of the gods, which would lead to one's downfall, or nemesis. Out of all the Persian rulers, Xerxes would pose the greatest threat towards Greece and see it face its greatest crisis. This would also help shape his reputation in the eyes of the Greeks, who lived and breathed these uncertain times. We have looked at the Spartans all throughout this episode, but to finish off, I want to quickly look at how they were represented visually and the ideals they were fighting for. The entire film, the Spartans are dressed in nothing but their leather briefs and a red cloak. And then when in battle, they add their aspis, greaves and helmet. This then allows the Spartans in the film to constantly have their perfectly chiselled bodies on display, reinforcing the idea of the Spartans' desire for a society of strong, fit and healthy warriors. It is debated still, but mostly thought that the Spartans fought a little more clothed, and with a bit more armour, such as a chestplate, like most other city-state hoplites. Fighting without this protection in the film also reinforces their lack of fear of death in battle. The Spartans also come across completely uniform when arranged in their phalanx, with the most notable feature, their shields, or aspis, with the lombarda featured on the front. It is thought that if the Spartans did use the lombarda on their shields, it would have been well into the Peloponnesian War, and our first reference to it coming from a fragment by the comic poet Euplus, when he writes, He took fright at seeing the lombardas flash out. Throughout the film, the Spartans are presented as fighting for freedom. Though the movie completely ignores the elephant in the room, the Spartans controlled an extremely large slave population known as the Helots. These were the populations that the Spartans had conquered over the preceding century, most notably the Mycenaeans. Although most city-states had slaves within them, the Spartan helots were other Greeks, almost unheard of by this time on the Greek mainland. So the notion that they were fighting for Greek freedom seems a little ridiculous, since they themselves were denying other Greeks their freedom. Though, of course, they were talking about their freedoms they as Spartans enjoyed. To stay free they would need to defeat the outside threats such as the Persians. But unlike other Greek city-states, they needed to prevent revolts taking out within, since their entire economy, and by extension society, depended on their slave class. This now brings us to the end of our look at the movie 300, and how it stacks up against the Greek sources. There is a lot that I summed up and skipped over, but this episode blew up much more than I originally planned. I feel we covered quite a lot of the major themes and events throughout though. Again, when watching this film, some of the major things to keep in mind are that the story has been told by a Spartan, recounting the sacrifice of his fallen comrades and king. The graphic novel by Frank Miller was the main inspiration behind how 300 came to be presented. 
Finally, reading the ancient Greek sources related to the Battle of Thermopylae really contribute to understanding how many of the themes and events are presented. And remember, this is not a documentary, but a story. Hopefully it was obvious that my main focus here was to compare 300 against the main Greek sources that relates to Thermopylae, or other matters to do with the Spartans. Doing this was to show that much of the film wasn't just made up from nowhere, which has been a common view I have come across. As we have seen, much of what has been presented has historical examples or context that can be pointed to. This shows that when Frank Miller created the original story for his graphic novel, he had done his homework. This then translates into Zack Snyder's 300. Though this is Hollywood, so some exaggeration and artistic license is almost certain. I really hope everyone was able to take something away from this look at 300 against the sources, and perhaps be able to look at the movie in a different way. It isn't a completely historically accurate depiction of the fighting at Thermopylae, but it does a good job at presenting the various accounts and themes found in the ancient Greek sources. Next episode, we're going to get back on track with our narrative and head back to the story of Xerxes' second invasion. Now that we have finished up with Thermopylae, we will be heading off to sea to look at the battle that was taking place at the same time the pass was being fought over. The Battle of Artemisium was the second part of this initial defence put forward by the Hellenic League. The fleet at Artemisium was preventing the Persian navy from being able to outflank the position at Thermopylae. So stay tuned as next time we will look at the events taking place during this first naval engagement of the second Persian invasion. With the approach of the holiday season, I will be temporarily slowing down my release schedule for the show. The next two episodes will be released monthly, but then we will get back to normal with fortnightly releases and hopefully some news on some new developments to do with the show. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. They go a long way to supporting the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 22, The Battle of Artemisium. <laughs>